Hey, good morning. It's good to be with you as we uh, work our way through, as Chad said, the book of Philippians um, in this series called Citizens of Heaven. We're in chapter two today as we continue. I, I don't know if you've noticed, but the last two years have been a little strange for most of us, right? They've just been, they've been a little strange. It feels for me at least like the, the whole pandemic period has been a blur. Um, I regularly have to remind myself like what year it is and how old I am and all sorts of things that just sort of came naturally. Uh, I know it's, it's impacted all of us in different ways, um, but beyond, you know, even just the, the, maybe the key things we think of like guidelines or restrictions or all of that, I think one of the more sad and unfortunate realities of the last couple of years is, is how it's divided us as a society, as people, whether it's just scrolling through social media or the news or even just bumping into someone in the grocery store. I have never been confronted with such strong opinions all the time about everything. Everyone wants you to have a strong opinion and everyone has a strong opinion in return, it feels. And not only that, everyone seems to be vocal about their opinion. Most of us have discovered that one of our family members, maybe extended family members, is just a little, we have a few questions about them, right? Like you thought you knew who Aunt Betty was until she got a Facebook account and started posting every single day and you realize you didn't know who Aunt Betty was any longer. We, and if you don't have that crazy family member, um, hate to break it to you, but you might be that family member. <laughs> But while opinions aren't wrong in and of themselves, and, and I have my own opinions about most things, uh, we get into trouble, and a consequence of this has been that we are, we are divided. There's more division. The tendency all of us, myself included, have is to take our strong opinion and sort of form a camp around it. We find voices and personalities and people and different news outlets that, uh, that affirm and confirm our opinion. And we sort of build a little fortress, a silo, where it, it, we, we are surrounded by people who think like us and talk like us. And we, we get more and more entrenched into a particular camp or view. We have entire groups that are formed, not around what they are for or what they are supporting or, or love, but around what they are against or what they hate, what they are um, anti. And all of this is exaggerated and amplified by the fact that everyone, myself included, is on their phones more. We've been home more, we've been scrolling more, we've been intaking more and more news. And the digital algorithms at play behind the scenes, which I'm sure you are at least partially aware of, suggest more and more content based on your last thing you watched or read. We are not given a balanced perspective when we scroll through social media. We are repeatedly given more and more extremes, drawn into the far ends of any particular issue. Just pick your, pick your issue of, of choice. We are more and more entrenched, pushed towards extremes. And the church has not been immune to this. We used to argue about silly things like how loud the drums should be or whether there should be drums at all or whether people should wear hats in church. And obviously, you know where we stand on most of those things. But in the last two years, we've had people leave our community for all sorts of reasons. 
We've had people leave our community because we didn't take a strong enough stance on one issue or we took too strong of a stance on another issue. We've had people come to us and sit down with us for coffee and tell us their opinion, and they're not even part of our community. They don't attend here. There's just this like division, this tearing that has happened. We've had more people frustrated and angry about what we have or haven't done in the last two years than in many years before. We are not immune to the pull towards division, to extremes, to tribalism, where we take our camp in a particular issue and sort of set up our camp there. At the beginning of 2021, a study from the Barna Group revealed that 29% of pastors were considering quitting full-time ministry. At the end of 2021, just a few months ago in December, the percentage had gone up to 38% of pastors. There's probably a number of reasons for that. I think in part, you know, maybe there was a lack of self-care or just an unsustainable pace of life that sort of caught up to some people. But by and large, the number one contributor has been division within congregations. It's been hard to navigate the variety of strong opinions and emotions that come with those opinions. And all of this begs the question, is it possible to live together? Is it possible for us to live together, to avoid kind of finding people who just agree with us on every political or social or cultural issue and and, and meet with them? Is it possible for us to come together as God's people, as his church, with people we might disagree with or think differently to? And if so, how? What should inform our relationships with one another? The last two weeks, Chad spoke about how Philippi was settled as an outpost of Rome. Um, Caesar Augustus had conquered the area and gave the land to his soldiers to uh, effectively um, convert that area and build the city that would represent and promote and establish the Roman culture and way of life. It was like this cultural machine that was created to convert people to the Roman way of life. And Paul writes into this context, his, his letter to the Philippians. And our key verse from this series is Philippians 1.27. It says, Above all, you must live as citizens of heaven, conducting yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. The Philippians lived in this culture that was pulling them in all sorts of directions, and they faced the same challenge and question we faced and we have always faced, but are facing maybe now today, and not to kind of over-dramatize or exaggerate, but facing maybe now today more than we have in previous generations or decades. Is it possible for us to live together, to have deep, meaningful relationships with one another who may not agree with us on a number, a variety of issues? Paul writes this in Philippians 2, 1 to 11. He says, Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. Paul writes, 
to this community that is learning how to live as citizens of heaven in the midst of the strong cultural pressure they felt from the world around them. Learning how to live as a community. And in that culture, what was valued and celebrated in the day, the orientation point that people had would have been their leaders. When people thought of, of great leaders in that, in that day, they most commonly would have thought of first Alexander the Great from the 300s in BC, who by the time he died at the age of 33, uh, was considered to have conquered essentially the whole modern world that they knew of at the time. In fact, some people referred to him as divine, as some partially divine. He himself even suggested this. You can imagine humility was not top on his character list. But as this, be, this became actually a common practice with the leaders of the day, where the people of Philippi, it was Caesar Augustus, that was their leader, who was considered at least partially somehow imbued with the divine. In fact, some people would even call them a son of God. And so in that culture, the orientation point for success, for what leadership and strength looked like was embodied by the leader of the day. Things like strength and military power and dominance and superiority, moving up the ranks. It was upward mobility, becoming more superior, more dominant, having more authority and power. This is what was valued at the time. And Paul writes into this context, giving them this challenge, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. Do you see how foreign that would have been to the culture of that day? How contrary it would have been? It feels even for us as we read it a little bit like wishful thinking. Like, is that actually possible or is Paul just out to lunch? And how do we do this? Paul goes on. He tells us how. He says, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. And then what Paul gives us here is what many scholars believe is one of the great poetic theological texts of Jesus that we have in scripture. There's lots of debate. If you look at any online forum or commentary, there's lots of debate about the form and structure and origin of this poetic text. But depending on what translation you have, if you open your Bible, the text will shift from kind of a narrative, sort of as it reads like a book, to a, to a poetic style where it reads like a poem. There's single lines and stanzas. Most scholars call this a Christological hymn. It's almost like a song a poem about who Jesus is, because some things are only communicated through poetry, through song, through art. And Paul says, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. And then he goes on, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. 
In this text, we get this grand picture of who Jesus is. We see Jesus for who he is. And Paul wants us to see that Jesus is God. He's not just another man. He's not just a a good teacher. He is God. In fact, Paul will take a, a quote from Isaiah 45. It's an Old Testament scripture that was attributed to Yahweh, the Israelites' God, that says this, to me, every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. That was initially in Isaiah referring to Yahweh, the Israelites' understanding of God. And Paul takes this text and inserts Jesus into it, saying, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. He wants us to see that Jesus is God. But secondly, he wants us to see what God is like. What is God like? Have you ever wondered? Paul goes on, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Now there's lots of discussion and debate about uh, specifically verse seven and what it means that he became nothing. Some of your translations might say he emptied himself. Um, People have wondered, did he stop being divine? Did he, you know, when he came to earth, was he just a man or, or was he God, but just kind of pretending to be a man? And when people asked him like, hey, where are we going, Jesus? And he said, I don't know. He was really playing mind games with them. Like he didn't know. Like he was walking around as God and he was just playing with everyone's mind. There's lots of discussion about what this means, but this is not a text about what God did. It's a text about what God is like. One commentator writes, the decision to empty himself or become nothing was not a decision to stop being divine. It was a decision about what it really meant to be divine. See, we need to start with Jesus and rethink our whole picture and concept and understanding of God around him. This is what God is like. He's a God of self-sacrifice. He is a God who lays down his rights and privileges for us, for the sake of one another. He is the God of self-giving love, of humility, of self-sacrifice. Brian Zand writes, above all things, the cross as the definitive moment in Jesus's life is the supreme revelation of the very nature of God. And you have to see how this portrait of Jesus sits in stark contrast to the portrait, the Roman portrait of the divine that was embodied by their leaders. Their orientation point for how to live was, was you know, humility and subjection to anyone or anything were viewed as weakness, as something to be avoided, as a negative thing. It was, it was a culture that celebrated power and might and superiority and authority. But Paul redirects us back to Jesus and specifically back to Jesus on the cross. That God would come as a servant and die on a cross was scandalous. It was considered shameful at the time. Crucifixion was a death reserved for slaves and foreigners. It was not a death that God, much less any good leader, would ever die. But this one event sits at the very center of Paul's theology and informs everything he writes in the New Testament. In 1 Corinthians 2, he says, For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. 
or in 2 Corinthians 8, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. Is it possible to live together? Is unity possible in the church? Yes. But we need a new orientation point. We need a new orientation point for how to live together. To live as citizens of heaven, we have to make Christ crucified our orientation point. Without this at the center, all of this stuff about putting others before yourself, considering them above yourself, serving them in humility, looking out for their interests, it's foolishness. But as we gaze at the cross of Christ, as we gaze at Jesus on the cross, as it becomes our orientation point, begins to make sense. Is Jesus your orientation point for how to treat others? For how to live in community? How to treat people? Or has some other voice, some other personality, some other talking head or, or influence become your orientation point? Become the thing that you look to for how to live your life and live in community with one another. See, the death of Jesus was never meant to be this relic from the past that we sort of, you know, tell our kids about and we believe in and sort of look back on. The cross of Christ was meant to permeate our whole lives. Paul says, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ. Jesus will say something very similar, but with different language. Take up your cross and follow me. In the past two years, there have been times where I've been deeply disappointed with how Christians have treated one another. I'm sure you have felt the same. Because we passionately believe that something is true, we think that we have a license to treat people however we want. Because we are so passionate and fired up about our opinion or what our sense of truth is, we feel like we can speak and treat others however we want. We break relationship and justify tearing others down, at times even slandering people, specifically online, in the name of truth. And honestly, in the past two years, there have been times where I've been deeply disappointed in myself and how I think and view others, and how I treat others, and what thoughts come to my mind. It has been so hard. It's like a spiritual discipline to keep my big mouth shut. It's hard, isn't it, to stay out of the comment section in Facebook. It is a spiritual discipline, and only by the grace of God do we avoid the comment section in Facebook. Because I have my own strong opinions. I have my own thoughts about what people should or should not be doing. Living in community is hard. It's painfully hard at times. It's much easier to break fellowship and find people that think like me and talk like me and believe like me and kind of build my camp there with them. That's much easier. But that is not the way of Jesus. The defining act of Jesus was an act of self-sacrifice. Laying down what we think is best for the, the, the benefit of others, giving up our rights for the privileges of others. Henry Nouwen, uh, a Catholic priest and author who uh, actually I love, he's one of my favorite authors. He spent much of his life ministering to a community of people with disabilities. And he has such profound wisdom for us on what it means to follow Jesus. And he says this, the way of Jesus is radically different. It is not the way of upward mobility, but of downward mobility. 
It is going to the bottom, staying behind the sets and choosing the last place. Is Christ crucified our orientation point for how to treat one another? Is Jesus' death on the cross something you just believe in theologically, intellectually, or does it inform how you live and how you treat those around you, your coworkers, your spouse, your neighbors, the crazy uncle who loves to forward you the weirdest emails every single day? Does it inform how you treat the people around you, the people closest to you, the people who are on the far end of the spectrum, the complete opposite end of every political or cultural or social issue? Does it inform how you treat those people and interact and engage with them. This portrait of Jesus is not just a bit of theology to kind of meditate on and get in our brains. It's a text about how to live together in community and avoid the extremes of tribalism where we make an enemy out of those we disagree with. It is so easy to write people off, isn't it? One comment one post, one thing they share, and we immediately like put a label on them and categorize them with all sorts of things. We, we lump them into a particular group of people so quickly. Without Jesus, specifically without Jesus on the cross as our orientation point for all that is good and true, living together is impossible. There's just too much to divide us. To live as citizens of heaven, we have to make Christ crucified our orientation point. And if we do, and as the band comes, we're going to close this morning, but if we do, if we allow that to permeate us, to kind of get in, not just into our head and into our mind, but into our heart and into our hands, if we allow that to move down into our lives, beautiful things happen. Parents know a thing or two about self-sacrifice. Um, I am just a rookie parent. Uh, our baby boy, Elliot, is three months old. I know there's some parents probably at the back with like three or four kids who are just like smugly shaking their head like, you have no idea. Um, parents know a thing or two about self-sacrifice. This amazing, beautiful thing happens where my needs and my wants and my time and my sleep become a little bit less important than our boy, Elliot. He just becomes a little bit more important. We sacrifice some of those things willingly because we love him. Is it possible that this is how God wants us to live together as a family, where we put the needs and wants of those around us before our own, where we value them above ourselves, where our opinion maybe doesn't always have to be everyone's opinion not in a disparaging way because we, we think we're not important or we don't have value, that's not it at all, but because that's what Christ did for us and because that's what it means to take up our cross and follow him. You know, there are some great epic stories of self-sacrifice throughout scripture, throughout history. I read a few and I wondered, should I bring you a, this epic, you know, story of self-sacrifice? Um, Honestly, I'm more inspired by the small daily acts, the measurable, the attainable acts of self-sacrifice. And I'm inspired by many of you that live self-sacrificially. Self-sacrifice looks like meal trains for new parents. It looks like being inconvenienced, maybe even choosing to be inconvenienced on your day off to help someone, maybe someone you don't even like or appreciate 
It looks like you, our community, giving $11,000 over the Christmas season to the gospel mission. Instead of, you know, buying another trinket or toy or going on another trip, just giving freely, willingly to support people in need. It looks like you giving each week of your finances, even when they're tight, even when money is hard to come by. It looks like giving up an evening a week to serve and volunteer somewhere. It's treating someone with dignity and respect online or in person, even though they do not treat you that way. It's letting go of your need to have the last word in every discussion and argument. You know, it wasn't long after Paul wrote this letter to the Philippians that Christians living under Roman rule became known for their their acts of charity, for how they cared for the poor and the sick, even at times in a pandemic when there was sickness going around. In fact, hospitals didn't really exist for the poor and lower class at the time. There were places where you could get a form of healthcare, but they were most typically reserved for the elite, those with money, those the higher class had access to those. Nobody cared for the poor or the sick or the stranger out of the goodness of their heart. But by the fourth century, newly, Christian, newly Christianized Romans began running homes for the sick and the needy. They began helping people just out of, out of their own home. They started caring for the poor and the sick. And it's, it's common for scholars to point to the origins of our modern day hospitals, to this era, specifically to followers of Jesus who allowed the life and ministry and death of Jesus to inform how they treated the lowest, how they treated those around them. Self-sacrifice, when, when Christ crucified becomes our orientation point, like our anchoring point, when we get it seared into our mind and our hearts and our hands, beautiful things begin to happen. We quickly realize that there is much more we have in common than we disagree on, much more that we come around and celebrate than we are divided with. And so as we close, I want to leave you with Paul's words again. He says, in your relationships with one another, in your interactions online and at work, in the grocery store, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who became nothing. He emptied himself. He became a servant for you and me, humbling himself. That is what God is like. That is what God is like. That is the very heart of God towards you and me. And that is the God we're invited to follow and serve as we take up our cross and follow him. Why don't you stand with me as we pray? So Jesus, this morning, we just turn our gaze towards you. Maybe just in your own, in your mind's eye, just could, would you picture Jesus? God, we just direct our our mind, our thoughts, our attention, our adoration towards you. That you would come as God in the flesh, as divine, and lay down your rights and privileges that we might have abundant life in you. 
we just reflect and sit with that. God, would you allow that truth, that event to move, not just in our head, intellectually, theologically, would you allow it to move down into our heart to inform how we live and treat others? Would it be our orientation point for how we live together as your people, as we put you at the very center? Pray this in Jesus' name this morning. Amen.